Thank you all so much for listening. This show has grown so much over the last year and a half. It keeps doubling in size. Now episodes are downloaded in over 60 countries around the world. Absolutely amazing. And one of the best ways that you guys can help this show is to write reviews. And I know it's a pain, right? But if you go on to um, Apple Podcasts, Library, Six Ranch Podcasts, you scroll down to the bottom, then you can rate the show and you can add a review. And for the next month, I'm going to look at all the new reviews that go in there and I'm going to randomly pick one of you guys and I'm going to send you a Sig Sauer Kilo 2400 ABS rangefinder. You can look it up. It's the expensive rangefinder. It's one of the best rangefinders out there. And it's what I use in competitions. It has a weather unit in it. Um, it'll give you a good ballistic hold for anything that you can range. And you can range stuff farther than you can shoot. I promise. Okay. Excellent rangefinder. And I want to give one away to one of you who reviews the show in the next month. Starting now, go. One night we were hunting Bloody Tusk and Moses, one of the one of the guides, Mo and I were pretty good buds. He uh, he was gonna play a trick on me. He didn't, you know, I didn't know anything. And so he goes, he goes, waves me over. We're being real quiet. And you know, he's kind of looking down in this hole, and I'm like, you know, something's. Not, I'm not gonna <laughs> poke my head in that hole, though. If you think that I'm gonna poke my head in that hole, I'm not gonna do that. And uh, he bends down real quick, and he throws this great big rock in the hole, and then he takes off running. And I mean, I turn and just start like getting out of there. And this mama comes out of there full speed and piglets are running everywhere. Piglets are running between my legs. Mama's taking off squealing. And I was, he's just dying laughing. I was like, no, man. I mean, I understand why you think that's funny, but right now I'm not super happy about, about that. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. The day you shot your kudu. The day that I shot my kudu. Um, how much backstory do you want on that? Not very much backstory. I, I was super fortunate to get to spend, uh, two stints in Africa and Namibia, um, three months each, uh, separated by four years. Um, basically was living there, trading, um, labor for room and board at an operation that hunted. What kind of labor? Oh gosh, it depended on the day. I mean, 
it was really interesting because during the day I was just doing any projects associated with running a 75 plus thousand acre hunting ranch, right? Um, working with the local guys doing anything from repairing fence to pouring concrete to rebuilding, you know, infrastructure or whatever. Were you working in the meat shop or doing working in the, stuff? Working in the meat shop. They had a full-time professional butchery. Um, first class butchery. I mean, it was, you could have walked into that butchery anywhere in the States and you, you wouldn't have even batted an eye, um, which was a great learning experience for me. Wait, how, how is it possible that they could have first class, clean and efficient butchery without someone from the USDA living there? <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they care. Oh, yeah. They care about their product. They care about their that. product. Yep. Yep. Just like and, butchers here. Yep. And they want to make a really good product. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So worked in the butchery quite a bit. Um, and then at night, uh, I would help the staff, like the wait staff serving food and talking to the clients and whoever just happened to be at camp at the time. So it was a super interesting you know, social, cultural experience for a kid from small town Wallowa County. Cause during the day you're working with these guys, you know, who are, who are local African guys and they're, they're happy, but they're not making much money. And they, I mean, they got paid well on this ranch. They, they did really well. It's, all, it's all relative. It's all right? relative. Yeah. Right. And then at night I was spending time with, you know, very, very wealthy. Most of them were, from Europe or Belgium or wherever they happen to be from. Um, but just a, a total change from the folks you're hanging out with during the day. And, uh, so I, I learned a lot about how much bigger the world was, even though my experience with there was like very isolated. Yeah. It was just an interesting, interesting day every day. And what about the day, the day, the kudu day? The kudu day. Um, so I won't go into too much detail about who was there, but he was he was doing really well, well enough and high profile enough that he was the only guy allowed to be at camp. As a client? As a client the yeah. whole for the whole time that he was there, the whole duration. Um, and I was asked prior to him coming to please not come to dinner. Um, you know, a fend for myself at night, which was totally fine. No big deal. Um, but I happened to bump into him. I think it was on the first morning. Uh, and he was super nice and actually invited me to dinner that night, which, which, uh, the guy that I was staying with, I think in hindsight, he knew that that would happen, but he needed it to happen organically and he needed me to be invited to dinner. Um, so, so then there we were, uh, skip fast forward a few days. Um, and I'm not a date guy. Like I'm not, I'm not great at remembering dates, mm. but this was on May 25th, 2012. Um, so as you probably know, the kudu rut happens kind of around the first of June in June and May. Um, so it's heating up. It's about so to happen. it was heating up. The bulls were, were moving. Um, and I, I guess I should step back. I was not there to hunt myself. I did get the opportunity, opportunity to go sometimes, 
especially if there weren't clients in camp. So I was not expecting to get to go on a hunt. Um, but this fella that was in camp one morning, he said, uh, you know, Chad, we're going to hunt sand grouse. Would you like to come along? And I said, yeah. I mean, first of all, I'd love to go. Second of all, anything to get me out of, you know, working all day in the hot African sun. So we loaded up and went to hunt sand grouse and they're like, uh, they're more like a dove. They look like a dove. Um, and we were in the bottom of an old dry pond. I got placed in the bottom of this dry pond and there was a bush kind of overhanging the dike of the pond. And so I was waiting there and the other two fellas went out of sight. Um, and we sat there for probably, I don't know, 45 minutes and, uh, didn't see any birds. And so I looked back towards the rig and they were motioning me to, to come along. So I had a little double barrel shotgun, um, you know, beautiful little, little gun, cracked it open, pulled the shells out, dropped them in a bag, took about two steps from underneath the bush and something caught my eye just off to my left on the, on the edge of the pond dike. And I looked over <clears throat> and I'm not the type of guy who's like, snakes don't bother me. Um, but I looked over and there was a snake there probably, I don't know, six or eight feet from me. Like, uh, do they have mambas there? They do, but I had never seen a snake like this before. Okay. And in my previous weeks and months that I had been there, I had like, I had found every bad snake that they had spitting cobras, um, puff adders, like <laughs> they said that they didn't want to hike around with me because I would find the bad snakes. So I step out from underneath this bush Here's this snake and it's just frozen there looking at me, you know, six feet away. And for whatever reason, this has never happened to me before. Like the hair on the back of my neck like stood up. I just knew that this was a bad outfit. Uh, so I glanced back up at the guys and <laughs> the guy that I was staying with, he's an ornery, ornery old bugger. He gave me this look like, come on, we got to go. And I just didn't move, kept staring straight ahead at this snake. And, uh, it looked me up and down and up and down. And finally it slithered underneath the bush that I had been standing under and up and over the dike. So I looked back up the hill and I motioned up there, snake, snake. So he comes down and he was from Manchester, heavy accent. He goes, what did it look like? <laughs> and, sorry if you're from Manchester and I really screwed that up heavy accent uh i said he was just steel gray and he goes mamba he goes give me the gun so i hand him the gun puts two shells in and we track it in the sand up and over the dike and on the other side of the dike there was grass and game trails that were coming to the pond and pretty soon the snake crawls out in one of the game trails and he shoots both barrels boom boom then he reaches back without looking gives me one of these. <laughs> so I reach in the bag and, you know, hand him two more. He shoots it four times and we stand there looking at it and it's doing the dead snake writhing on the ground thing. And, and, uh, finally I said, you know, can we, can we go look at that? And he goes, he goes, no, we need, we need to leave because a lot of times they're in pairs. Um, and this guy's hard. I mean, he's lived in Africa a long time. He, he's gone through a lot of stuff. You should, you should be talking to him instead of me. He's way more interesting. Uh, but I knew from the tone of his voice and, and, you know, 
how he just, he was serious. We needed to get out of there. So we did. Um, and we, <clears throat> we sort of changed, uh, tactics at that point. The fellow who had invited me on the hunt was looking for mountain zebra. Uh, which, awesome animal. Awesome animal. Um, really good to eat. Uh, you would think it's like, you know, if you, if you're thinking that's like shooting a horse in the pasture, you're dead wrong in the mountains of Namibia, especially the thick brush. Like they're, they're a super difficult hunt and an awesome animal. So he was going for mountain zebra. Um, and I, you know, I was already in the rig. They couldn't tell me to go home. So I got to go with them. And, uh, and they had asked me, um, is there anything specific that you're hunting? And I said, well, you know, the whole time I've been here, I've been waiting for my chance at a big kudu. Been thinking about kudu since I was 10 years old. Um, okay, you know, that's that sounds great, but we're hunting zebra. Anyway, we hunt most of the day. Um, and if you can imagine having a place big enough that you actually get lost on your own place, that's kind of where we were. And uh, they wanted to go this way, and I... You know, I was trying not to chime in, but I was saying, no, I, I actually think we need to go back this way. And so we kind of split the difference and ended up in this horrible side of a mountain and all completely torn up by thorns and um, came out bleeding and sweating and exhausting, exhausted, uh, which is how an African hunt should be, right? Yeah, and African thorns are a different kind of thorns. <sighs> and I come from, I, I that comes from a place of saying like, seen some thorns yeah i've been in some thorny places yeah african thorns are on another level they'll, so they're bad. like kill you thorns i mean they call it a wait a bit bush yep because once you're in there you're gonna have to wait a bit yep until you pull them each out individually to even get yourself on snag from the bush it's not like you're pulling thorns out of your body you're getting your body off of the bush right so if you're going to africa and you're going to be hoofing it around and like doing hunting things in africa don't bring clothes you care about. No. <laughs> like, no. Step one. No. Like, they're not coming back with you. No. Yeah. And at that point in that day, none of that mattered anyways. Sure. You know, like, we were so tired and the sun's just pounding on you all day. And there's also a huge difference between thorns on your way out versus thorns on your way back. On your way back, thorns suck worse. A lot worse. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> yep. So... We managed to, to find our way back to the rig and, uh, I was sitting in the back. It's all open air vehicle. I was sitting in the back on a, on a raised seat and the other two guys were down in the front, front driving and, and, uh, you know, we were zooming back and I was just looking around like one of those days where you're dog tired, but you, you have enough sense in that moment to realize like I'm here and this is incredible. And, you know, I was just like taking a second, reflecting on that. And all of a sudden they hit the brakes. And for whatever reason, I just knew it. I just knew what it was. They hit the brakes. I reached for the gun. And before I could even pull the gun up, I heard, I heard the guy I was with, he goes, get out of the motor and take him. <laughs> so I jumped out of the back and this kudu bull had trotted across the road in front of us. And, you know, you've been in Africa. Sometimes you can't see. As soon as they're across the road, that, you know, over. It's not like you're getting out and shooting him out the window of the pickup. I mean, it's not like that. And and this place I, I really liked uh, in particular because he didn't allow hunting at water holes. He also didn't allow shooting from a vehicle. Hmm. Um, 
which is uh, a little bit rare in today's haunting world in Africa. For sure. And, and here in the States as well. Yeah. Um, so right, wrong, or indifferent, that's that's the way he did it. Um, so anyway, I, I hop out and get on the track of this kudu bull and start following him through the brush and, and finally catch him. And, um, you know, made a made a pretty good shot and, and gave him one more follow-up. And uh, What were you shooting? He was shooting 30-06, hmm. actually. He, he really liked shooting 30-06. Um, and so, you know, here I was. I started the day six feet from one of the deadliest snakes on the planet who are super aggressive. And if you get bit out there, you're better off to find a, you know, spot of shade and enjoy the rest of your time. And then all of a sudden I had harvested a kudu with, you know, a very wealthy guy that had treated me very well. And I mean, it was just a mind blow, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was just one of those days. It was, it was incredible. The hardest animal for me to turn up when I was in Tanzania, which was for about a month, was a warhog. A, yeah. A good warhog. And we saw lots of them. Saw lots and lots of them. But finding a big boar, um, gosh, we just couldn't turn it up. It was the last thing that, last animal I was after. And uh, the only shot that I missed in that month was on a warthog. Mm. Right. And my trackers were giving me hell about it. And I was of course pretty hard on myself. Um, so now we're looking and looking and looking and trying to turn up another one. And we came across a Mamba and he reared up right next to the truck, you know, about eye level. And one of the trackers reached out and lopped his head off with a machete and then another mamba took off. Same deal. Yep. Same deal. Yep. Um, and those psychopaths barreled out of the truck and went and tried to like dig it out of the brush to chase it down. And we finally got them wrangled back up and they um they're all excited and they're like, This is good luck. We're gonna find a warthog now. It's like that that feels like bad luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause if a mamba these these black mambas, they're a big snake. So if I'm talking about this thing looking at me when I'm sitting in the back of a truck and it's looking at eye level, most of its body's still on the ground. They can strike with a third of their body off the ground. Yeah. A third of the length of their body off the ground. And like twice the length of their bodies are striking distance or something absolutely ridiculous. This one I saw was, was like a nine foot snake, yeah. but not a big snake. Like you think of a Python, like an athletic fast yeah. snake. Very, very fast. Very fast. Um, it can take anywhere between a minute and a couple hours for that bite to kill you. Yep. You're absolutely 100% going to die if Black Mamba bites you. So that didn't feel like good luck. But I also had reason to trust these guys other than that they made fun of absolutely everyone for everything. Like, they're merciless and nobody was off limits. So I was like, I don't know if I want to, like, fully drink this Kool-Aid or not. And then that afternoon, sure enough, turned up a big warthog and, you know. There he is. Yeah. Right behind you. Yeah. I was admiring him earlier. Yeah. And uh, you and I have not talked about this before, but the last animal that I harvested um, was a warthog. Really? And it was the warthog, right? So, like I said, there was no hunting over any water holes. There was also a water hole at the compound there. You could see it from the Lapa, which is where we would all go eat um, and spend time. And this one warthog was 
a war horse. That's what you like. That's what you would call it, you know. And and uh, just that was the one. Like I'm gonna hunt this one or nothing. And and one day he came in in Namibia. The ground's really really hard, so they end up brooming down their tusks quite a bit um, from digging in that hard rocky soil. And uh, he had one day he came in and one tusk was all covered in blood. So we called him Bloody Tusk. And any time that he would come in to the water hole and we didn't have clients, I was given permission, fair game. I had to grab one of the guys, so one of the professional, you know, guides there, which which were all local guys, which is one of the first outfits in Namibia to have their local guys be guides. Black dudes? Yep. That's incredibly uncommon. Incredibly uncommon. Yeah. Uh, and there were, And they were first class. Of course. These guys are phenomenal. They're incredible. They're phenomenal. Like superhuman. It was crazy. And I'd like to talk about that in a minute. But <laughs> well, anyways, so I would have to grab one of them first. But by the time that happened, you know, Bloody Tusk would come into the water, he'd drink, and he would vanish. And we had so many times where we were hunting for him, and it didn't happen. It was so difficult. He would get lucky. We would get unlucky. Uh, whatever, whatever, whatever. And literally the last day that I could hunt, before we had clients coming in and then I was going to have to leave. We managed to follow him clear back into the bush and make, you know, it was just a matter of time. And the luck finally happened for us. And I took him at like 12 yards hmm. and, you know, practice those shots kids because 12 yards is a difficult shot. So easy to miss. It's so easy to miss. Uh, but I shot and I mean, he instantly just took off. And it all happened so fast. And I was just like, holy smokes, I missed him. You know, <laughs> and mm-hmm. there was not much blood. And and uh, anyways, we ended up finding him. And I was just like, holy smokes, it's Bloody Tusk. And, and the place I was staying, he had told me, he said, all your trophies someday will be on your wall. And you'll be proud of all of them. But the first one that people will go and talk about is your warthog. <laughs> I mean, they, they're incredible. There's an incredibly tough hunt to find a big one and hunt one warthog. Oh yeah. And I feel like a lot of people trash on them and I don't know if it's like, if, if South Africa is just covered in warthogs and it's just no big deal. It, it could be. But yeah, turning up a big warthog was really tough and frick, we tracked them a long ways. We'd hunt a single pick and then they get down in a hole and I didn't know that they went underground in yeah. holes like a yeah. badger yeah um, they back in yeah and the mamas will send the little ones in first and then she'll back in the hole so the tusks are pointed out one night we were hunting bloody tusk and moses one of the one of the guides mo and i were pretty good buds he uh he was gonna play a trick on me he didn't, you know i didn't know anything and so he goes he goes waves me over we're being real quiet and you know he's kind of looking down in this hole and i'm like you know, something's, I'm not going <laughs> to poke my head in that hole, Mo. If you think that I'm going to poke my head in that hole, I'm not going to do that. And, uh, he bends down real quick and he throws this great big rock in the hole and then he takes off running. And I mean, I turn and just start like getting out of there. And this mama comes out of there full speed and piglets are running everywhere. Piglets are running between my legs. Mama's taking off squealing. And I was, he's just dying laughing. I was like, no man. I mean, 
I understand why you think that's funny, but right now I'm not super happy about, yeah. about that. I mean, their, their sense of fatalism is quite a bit different from yeah. us. Like if, yeah. if that thing would have come out there and killed you, that would have also been funny. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we don't feel like that. No. But they certainly do. They run between your legs and they slash at your legs with yeah. their cutters and they cut your femoral and you bleed out and die. Yeah. It happens there. Yes. Every day of the week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the baby warthog piglets, wartlets, I don't know. Sure. The baby warthogs, they run just like adults. And it's kind of this indignant, like, side-to-side shuffle with her tail straight up in the air. And I watched this mama warthog take off. And they weren't, like, really trying to get out of town. They were just going away. And the piglets were behind it. And this big brown eagle that they called a snake eagle yeah. came down and snatched one of those things up and flew off with it like an osprey with a rainbow trout. Yeah. And it was screaming and squealing. I was like, make all the noise you want, kid. There's no version of this that ends with you making it. No, no. And uh, that's the story for a lot of critters in Africa. If you live to adulthood in Africa. A lot of death going on. Yeah. More than any place I've ever been. Seriously. It's constant. Yeah. I think the first night that I was there, there was uh, this really awesome, huge, like, but gorgeous moth that lit on the, like, on the stone by the fireplace at Lapa. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, that moth is amazing. And I, you know, I didn't even finish the sentence, and this lizard runs out and eats it. <laughs> and they're like, welcome to Africa, you know. As soon as the lizard goes back, it, something's going to eat it. So it's just the way it is. Yeah. And humans are not a dog exempt. No. Like, people get eaten and killed by animals and by other people a lot at, a, at an alarming rate yeah. to us. But, you know, it's just kind of how they live their lives there. Yep. And I will say, you know, we we were predominantly hunting planes game. But there is something about, I mean, we slept, you know, we were sleeping in tents some night. And one night, you know, this leopard walked right by the tent. <laughs> you know, and it's like, you're not sleeping when that's going on. No, and what can you do? You, nothing. You don't have your gun with no. you. No. You got nothing. But there's something about feeling that alive, mm-hmm. you know? And I know you know about that. You know about it more than I do. But the fact is, is that, like, you know, I'm sure it's, you know, it's just like, whoa, you know? Hyenas are whoop, whoop yep. in the background. And it's like, dude, this, this is Africa. This is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. We heard the lions every night. Oh, that's awesome. Every night. Yeah. And there are three dudes in the camp next to us that got killed by lions while I was there. And, you know, we grew up with like the ghosts in the darkness and all this stuff. I'm (laughs) like, all right, we're going hunting for man eaters now. (laughs) And I I asked him, like, are we going to go try and find this lion? And one of the trackers um, started making fun of me and he acted like, he was licking something else. I said, what, what's he doing? And the pH goes, are you going to look for the one licking the dirt to get the taste out of his mouth? I was like, whoa. Jeez. Yeah. Like nobody cares. It's just a thing. And then, you know, you, you're starting to go to sleep that night after, you know, a day of hunting like you've never had, never thought you would have. And then you hear, ooh, ooh, ooh. It's like, oh, my God. Yeah, you know, it Sleep is tight. such a 
different feeling. Yeah, I think I'll have another bottle of scotch first. <laughs> no? It's crazy. Yeah. And then there's some Maasai dude sitting outside your tent with a club. It's like, you know, I appreciate the the uh, the gesture, but I know you were going to ski daddle if a yeah. lion rolls in yeah. here. Shove that thing in sideways, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Please slow him down by the time yeah. he gets to me. Yeah. So any, anyways, I guess that was a really long-winded uh, answer to your question. Um, and I don't know that we had intended to talk about Africa, but... It's I, almost not worth intending to talk about something on a podcast. Sure. Maybe even in general. Sure. Or specifically. Okay. But it's good. It's good to talk. Um, it's good to sort of rehearse these stories to keep them fresh and, and help preserve that memory. Cause we don't have a lot that can preserve a memory well. And I think part of the reason that we tell stories and that that's part of how we communicate and that we'll, you know, you and I will tell each other hunting stories that both of us know we've told the other one before, but by doing that, we're we're reminding ourselves of what happened we're keeping that that oral tradition alive and there's something within telling a story about an experience whether that's a hunt or anything else that that brings it back and brings some of those feelings back and you know for a lot of people i think the only one who enjoys a hunting story is the person who's telling it for other people if the story's told well then they get to have a sample of that feeling. They get to have that little bit of spark in their imagination of like, what would it be like, you know, to be working for room and board, cutting meat and doing day labor, and then having a leopard walk past your tent at night when you don't have a rifle with you? Like, what would that feel like? What would I do in that situation? So true. And the ability to... I kept a journal of every day from that trip and they every day was not almost getting, you know, bit by a mamba and then shooting a kudu. That wasn't every day. Um, but what I tell people, if they're going to go on an adventure now that I have kept a journal, I say, and keep a journal. If you don't keep a journal, we've got awesome like recording systems on our cell phone. Tell the story of each day into your cell phone. You can record it. If you're not a writer, you don't have time to write or whatever. And and then the other thing that I throw in is be sure to write down what you ate for dinner. Yeah. Because I think that just lets people, and you know, some people get it, some people don't, but the people who get it, it tells them to remember like the details that our minds will forget, you know, write down what you had for dinner. And then they start thinking like, okay, I saw this really awesome bird and I, and I took time to think of, you know, I made a note of it mm-hmm. or what, just whatever small details that, like you say, our minds are not good at remembering. I would add another one to that as an experiment, but I would say write down something that you smelled that day. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know yep. that smell has the ability to bypass a bunch of gates within our minds. Yep. Um, and that's why a smell can bring back a memory incredibly vividly, almost, almost in a way that it's overpowering and can be a little bit disorienting, like bringing you straight back into it. Totally. Um, so I wonder if writing down a smell could help 
um, make that memory a little bit more lively. I think it totally does. And and that's one of the reasons why I chose what you had for dinner. Yeah. Because that taste and smell, sure. auditory experience, you know, it's like, you know, goes straight to the, I used to know, I took all the anatomy and physiology courses, like it goes straight to your cerebral cortex. It doesn't yeah. have to go through all those gateways. Like the you said. medulla oblongata. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyways, um, keep a journal. Yeah. It's a good idea. Or make sure you tell your grandkids. Somebody told me that I should write down or like make a tag for every buck I killed and every bull I killed and like put some of the pertinence down on that and keep it on the antlers. I was like, there's no way this means so much to me. There's no way that I'll ever forget. And it can definitely feel like that. And then suddenly you've shot 30 bucks or 40 bucks Mm -hmm. and you walk into a shop and you look at one of them and you go, I can't remember which one you were. Not, and not even that. It's like, I think that we will remember which one you are, but it's like you lose that passion for telling the story of that buck. Right. And that's sad to me. And a lot of times, like I'll, so my dad's a taxidermist. I grew up in a taxidermy shop and we have this horn pile, right? Of all the things that my grandpa and dad and whatever have collected over time. Like I'll pull them out and every once in a while, especially when I was a kid, I'd be like, dad, tell me about this one or tell me about that one. And I always thought, especially now, you know, then I just like to hear the story, but now I'm like bummed because, you know, grandpa's not here anymore. Um, so what I started doing just mostly for me and the hope that maybe someday somebody finds it interesting, maybe they will, maybe they won't. I don't know. Um, but I actually write my name, the date and like maybe the area Mm. in small, um, writing on the back of the European mount so that, you know, years from now, if it's maybe, maybe they threw it away, maybe they gave it to the local hardware store and maybe the guy who bought it, you know, when he sold it, he pulled it down. He was like, no kidding. I remember, you know, hearing about this guy and this was his, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so I actually started writing on the back of my, my Euro skulls or, if you have a shoulder mount, I write on the back of them on the wood, on the back of the mount. Let me ask you this. What's going to happen to all these antlers and horns and shoulder mounts and skins and skulls and animal paraphernalia when you die? I don't know. Think anybody's going to want it? Maybe. I mean, I look at this at this Cape Buffalo that, you know, we, we tried to kill each other and I won. Yep. And someday somebody's going to heave this thing in a dumpster. Maybe. Maybe. But, uh, that's, but I, don't I think, know. No, I, think the... I just don't know if, if, if many people want to inherit like a, a lifetime of taxidermy and, and animal parts. Yes. Yeah, maybe not. I, I do. But I grew up in a taxidermy shop. Yeah. Like, I don't know any better. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like I either was going to not love it or that was going to be my life. Uh-huh. You know, this type of thing. And, and uh, so I don't know. I guess I guess the reason I ride on the back, maybe it gets thrown in the dumpster. But if it doesn't and somebody happens to care, they'll know at least a little bit about it. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't know. I like it. I think that's smart. Smart. Look we'll at, see. Look at smart. Yeah. Okay. So basically, you're talking about taking some data points and preserving them. Yeah. Do you do that with uh, with any other aspect of, of hunting or wildlife management? Um, well, I, and I'm not sure this is where you're going with this, but I also am pretty uh, staunch about keeping an actual photo album that mm. you can hold in your hand instead of flipping through your phone or trying to dig through your computer. Nobody cares to sit there and you hand their phone back and forth. Yeah. Um, I guess I just like the nostalgia of picking up a photo album and looking mm -hmm. through it. And I write a little note about who was there in the year and whatever. Uh, you don't have to pay to keep it on the cloud. No, no. And if somebody's sitting there on the couch and they want to look at it, they can. Mm -hmm. I don't have to ask me the password to my laptop and then dig through. You know, it's like, that's not. Yeah. I don't know. Nobody looks through it but me anyway. I like to sit there. And look at it. <laughs> I used like, to love that. I would hunt stuff like that out when I went to people's houses yeah, as a kid. Yeah. Like, and I don't know that we went to anyone's house who didn't hunt or at least have a family member who hunted, but yeah. everybody had that. I feel like it was the same album. It had like a little gold, like yep. playing card looking <laughs> thing on the outside. Yeah. 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 Um, and I used to love that. And I'd, I'd look through all the pictures and I'd make up stories in my mind about what I thought had happened. And then, you know, if I was courageous enough, I'd ask somebody who knew, you know, what that yep. picture was about. Yep. Good on you. Yeah. Um, I was talking more along the lines of like yep. data points for elk. Yep. Yep. Because you've got some data. Um, I started guiding in official capacity, I guess, um, if you want to differentiate between guiding and taking people hunting. Uh, but I started officially guiding in 2013 on a pretty unique chunk of ground here in Northeast Oregon, private ground. And, uh, so it was like the ultimate elk beaker test tube for me to learn about elk and elk behavior. And, uh, wasn't asked to do this, but just my own curiosity and the love of the animals and whatever, I started keeping data points on age versus gross Boone and Crockett score. And, you know, with, with the understanding that we were hunting specific animals, right? This is not a representation of the population as a whole. But it's a representation of the best that were available within a very large population. That's exactly right. So yeah, any animal that's been harvested on that piece of ground since 2013 has a data point. And uh, what I'm finding out there is that peak antler production on elk is between 8 and 11 years old, which was older than I had probably thought before I started that. Yeah. Um, I think it's I think it's pretty in line with. Uh, you know, you hear people talking, guys who know and keep similar data points. And, you know, especially if you're going further south, um, those guys are, are hunting old bulls, you know, Utah and Arizona. But these northern elk, um, yeah, it's, it was just interesting to hunt bulls that were making it to that age to realize their potential. How many bulls do you think were hitting that age or older that you wouldn't even look at because they didn't have the lots? Elk? lots yeah yeah i think they were i th it took me a while to 
like we had that question pretty early on, but the more that we got it out there, the more the answer scientifically became lots, <laughs> you know. And if you think about it, I told guys when we were guiding out there, um, clients that would come in and I said, you know, we're, we're looking, we're looking at a math problem. That's all it is. It's like you have so many calves that are born and so many of those calves are bulls. And of those bull calves, so many make it to the age of eight to 11 that we're talking about. And of those bulls, you know, another fraction of a percent genetically ever had it to be the type of bull that we're looking for. And, you know, when you start talking about that, you know, for example, maybe there were 2,000 elk born, you know, on the year that this bull was born, and he was one of five that genetically was capable in that area to reach that potential. You know, I don't know, but it is just a big math problem. Well, and if we're going to draw out the Venn diagram, we have to have one circle that is bull reaches eight years old. Yeah. Another circle is bull is a genetic anomaly to exceed 290 inches of antler growth. Right. Um, and then we have a whole bunch of smaller ones that are things like stress from predators, stress from competing ungulates, um, stress from lack of water. Or all sorts of environmental forces, right? Yeah, malnutrition. Like, yep. you you have to have everything just right. It's yep. It's really not just like, oh, you've got to get a bull to become an eight year old, and then he's no. going to be big. And the question, you know, you always hear guys talk about is it is it genetics? Is it age? Is it feed? Yes, all of it. It's all of it. It's this. Have you ever heard the Swiss cheese model? <laughs> so if we all know Swiss cheese has holes, yeah, yeah. In, right? Yeah. So if I chop up and slices a bunch of Swiss cheese. And then I shuffle the deck and like turn everything around and you try and look through it. You can't see a, see a single hole anywhere. Sure. But if I get them just right, then all the holes align. And that's what you need. You need the Swiss cheese model. Totally. To get a big bowl. Okay. So I, I kind of spouted out my opinion there a little bit. But uh, what would you say is a representative Rocky Mountain bull elk in terms of gross Boone and Crockett score? What type of, uh, huh. so he's, he's a mature bull. Yeah. Are um, we talking in Northeast Oregon? Northeast Oregon. Sure. He's, he's average Joe. 280 to 310. Middle of the road. Yep. Probably. Yeah. He made it to maturity. Public land, say, you know, public land, normal draw unit. He makes it to maturity. 280 to 310, 315. Um, which is big. 310, it's a very, very big bull. I mean, I, I've hunted a lot and, you know, been fortunate enough to take quite a few bulls. And, uh, I have one that if you, you know, if you hold the tape, just how it should be held, he, he's like right at 300. Yeah. That's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of elk and a lot of bulls. I, I've hunted lots of better bulls. Um, and I've certainly, you know, been able to guide people to much, much better bulls, um, but yeah, a 300 inch bull, like I don't care what Instagram says. That's a really nice bull. Yes, it is. It's a really nice bull. And it it's worth bringing up because the average bull doesn't get to reach maturity. That's right. In most units. In most units. It doesn't happen. Mm-mm. So what I would tell guys is we were, we were looking for a fraction of the population. 
and it's and it's the reason that you know LeBron's in the NBA and I'm not like he's just different he just had you know he has something that I'm not gonna have and an elk is the exact same way they're all just so different they are they're individuals but there's enough similarities within that you can learn about elk yeah and as you start to get into them and and start to spend time with them if you have that opportunity as your arc of learning you actually get to spend time with elk watching them not even just hunting them just being around them it can start to become overwhelming when you notice that they are individuals and you 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 can get to the point where you're like oh my gosh i'm never going to be able to understand these things which i'm going to jump in that's why we love it yeah right which is true you know you are never going to be able to understand them but you are going to to break through that yep. and be like, okay, there are, there's enough similarities within elk that I can totally treat them like they're elk. Totally. And, and the amount of information out there right now, like to make you a better elk hunter is like, that is staggering for free for free. Yeah. Yeah. It's staggering. And, and you know, of course, de- depending on what you're looking at, there's a right way and a wrong way and, and whatever. Um, nothing is a substitute for time. And just time spent. Like I would say between you and I, you're more of a tactician. You're more of a student. Um, you know, you're, you've got this set of plans that you follow. Maybe it's the way you were raised. Maybe it's your military background or whatever. And I probably hunt more by just feel. Mm-hmm. Um, or, a little bit more jazz. Or, uh, just like I've just been out a lot, yeah. right? I, I was super fortunate. And I remember when I was five, like, dad took me out and we were watching this. I mean, he was running the mill five point rutting cows. So that, you know, it's been going on for a long time and just feel the behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but both of those have been effective strategies for us. Yeah. Not that we don't blend a lot of that. But. Sure. Yeah. And that's a good point. That's a very good point. And I think that's one of the great benefits to having so many different avenues for learning out there is you can take pieces of everybody's and and develop your own. Totally. And you really have to. Like don't don't try to hunt like somebody else. Try to hunt like you. Yeah. But, you know, maybe snag a little feature that you picked up. Totally. Yep, totally. Yep, nothing nothing is a substitute. Ultimately nothing is a substitute for spending time in the woods. So within your data collection, yep. once you see bulls reach maturity, do you think that they continue um getting bigger each year by click or two do what is regression a real thing like what have you seen with that uh so my data shows a a very well a pretty dang clear bell curve where we were seeing bulls past 11 that were you know again it's it's a question of the individual um maybe that bull was 13 and that was the best that he ever was but we have enough data points that we are showing a pretty clear bell curve the oldest bull so so we're sending in teeth right mm-hmm. we're getting teeth cross-sectioned oh you don't just eyeball them and <laughs> then say yeah that's 22 and three quarters oh, it's so funny uh anyways um we're we're sending in teeth uh the oldest bull that we ever sent in out there was 16 and a half and that bull scored 328 wow 
Um, we have some video of that bull, gosh, from several years before. And it was weird to the point where we were like, it can't be him. Hmm. You know, we saw that bull seven years ago. Hmm. Like, they can't be him. We're like, oh, it's his kid or whatever. But that his kid wouldn't look like a geria- You know, like, yeah. he's too old. Yeah. Anyway, we sent the tooth in and we're like, oh my gosh, we were finally able to put the pieces together. Like, this was that bull all these years definitely an outlier and he definitely regressed but you would think at 16 and a half he would be a shell of his former self like his points would be stubby and his everything would be stunted and he pretty much kept the same frame uh he pretty much you know had had similar point length and his build was the same and you know he held it together pretty well his teeth were in terrible shape do uh do bulls of different ages bugle differently? Certainly. Yeah. Depending on the situation, I think an older bull can fool you more often than a younger bull. A younger bull sounds like a younger bull with very few exceptions. Um, an older bull, if he's not putting his heart into it, can sound like a younger bull. But when he's going for real, there's no question that it's a different type of animal that you're dealing with. And when you're saying older or younger, what are we saying older or younger than? Um, I think that by the time a bull hits four, five, six, and you hear a bugle from him, you're going to be like, hmm, this guy knows. Like he's, you know, he's old enough that he's going to sound good. There have been a few bulls uh, that I know were, you know, seven, eight, nine, and when they bugle, it shook you. Yeah. Like they rip, right? Um but I've also heard bulls that I know are seven, eight, nine, and they bugle, and you're like, huh, expected a little throatier than that. After watching a kajillion, roughly a kajillion. Yeah, not give exactly. Or take. Yeah, give or take a lot. Videos of bulls bugling on game cameras, yep. I've given up. Yep. I've given up on hearing a bugle and knowing basically anything about it with one and one only exception, and that is a straight-up growl. Yeah. If a bull just goes, that is a herd bull. Doesn't mean anything about how big his antlers are. Yep. Doesn't mean anything about how the Boone and Crockett Club sat down in 1891 to determine what a scoring no. system looked like. No. It doesn't even mean that much about what his age is, other than that he's mature enough to have some cows that currently are his. Yep. And he's bugling with only the low portion of his bugle, only that growl, because the high-pitched portion of the bugle is built to cover long distances. Yep. And it is not to his advantage to express to a large area that he's there. But he's got to say something to let those cows and know they, what's And those up. older bulls, I think, can hit. Their higher high sounds different, um, but certainly the lower low. Yeah. There was there was one time where I was hunting, and uh, this bull was coming off the mountain towards us, and he was he was ripping pretty good. And uh, I was set up in a good spot, and this raghorn steps out, and you know, I'm, he kind of looks over his shoulder, and I'm like, okay, that that better bull's gonna come out. And the raghorn turned around and bugled, and I went, what? <laughs> Like my, you liar! <laughs> yeah, my mind couldn't comprehend that he yeah. had just done that, and it, still my mind was like, "Okay, 
where's the bigger bowl? You know, all of a sudden my confidence was just totally shot and it was him. Yeah. That happens very, very rarely where a little bowl, you know, three years old or younger, even a three-year-old can sound pretty good. Mm-hmm. A two-year-old, um, you know, this bull was a two-year-old and he sounded really good, but it's easier for an older bull to sound bad than a little bull to sound good. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. It also depends where they're at. Like a bull in big mature trees is going to sound deeper than a bull in lodgepole reprod or the open prairie. Yeah. Wide open prairie is just an entirely different thing. Yep. Yep. But the, uh, you know, the, the studio that they're broadcasting from has a lot to do with the sound that they make. I don't think there's anything better than listening to bulls bugle and old growth timber. I think it's a pretty nice thing. Yeah. Pretty nice thing. Yep. Can make you forget about every other thing. That I know that I can is. be hiking through this, the woods in the spring looking for morels. And I think, man, I'd love to hear a bull bugle right now hmm. in this, you know, in yeah. this spot. Like you get to those spots and you're like, gosh, I'd give anything to hear a a bull rip right in this area. What do people get wrong about elk? Uh, well, if anyone tells you always or never, they're probably wrong. If anyone tells you that they know everything about elk, they're definitely wrong. Uh, I think, I think people, gosh, such a loaded question. Um, anymore, I think, people the the first wrong thing they do is set a standard before they go out in the woods mm-hmm. and it's hard for them to not do that because they flip through their instagram or their facebook and they see all these things that elk are supposed to be and the standard that they're setting is someone else's standard that is probably inaccurate totally totally because if you looked well if you looked through the photo album of me guiding be like oh my gosh this guy doesn't kill anything less than a 330 bull 350 360 um but you open my photo album and you're like what do you mean you've never killed a bull that was over 300 you know so there's it's like all these misconceptions and those you know those bulls were awesome they taught me a ton and and uh but so did the other bulls like the three-year-old five point the four-year-old you know little six point if you have a six-point bull, and you add half an inch, half an inch per time. Yeah. That changes them by 10 inches. Totally. 10 points. But does that half inch that you cannot detect with your eyeball yep. change the experience that you just had? Exactly. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Is he a five-point or a six-point? This one is starting to really bother me because yep. I'm seeing – People who really, really care that it's a six-point bull. Totally. And that is even, that eclipses a score, that eclipses how good of a shot they've made, everything. It was like... A giant (laughs) five-point, I would, like, I would do bad things to hunt a giant five-point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, We were in Utah a couple years ago, and a a good friend of ours, Jake Vanderson, and shot a bull... uh, he he was technically a six point, but his you know his sixth point, his fifth point was uh, super. Short. He was basically a big five point. He yeah. scored three forty. 
<laughs> and for a bull that's basically a five point to be yeah. a three forty bull, I mean this thing was unreal. Yeah. And you know, that's like special animal. That's silly. And he was old. Oh, everything about that bull was just amazing. But um, what age of elk do you like to eat? I like to eat all elk. Well, let's say you're at a restaurant. You're at an elk restaurant, <laughs> and you get to eat a calf of, you know, either sex, and then uh, a cow or a bull going from one years old up to 16 and a half years old. Um, which which steak are you putting I, on your plate? I've eaten a calf before, and it was truthfully a little a little bit on the bland side. I I think any elk gets, you know, a yearling, say a spike up through four or five years old for a bull and for a cow, gosh, yearling through, I don't know, seven or eight. I, I don't you know. can only pick one, Chad. This is how the restaurant works. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to say, give me a two-year-old cow. Uh-huh. It's a good choice. I think that's a great choice. Yeah. That's what I shot last year. Well, the delicious? You know, I almost don't know because my little sister took That's, all of it. Sounds like a very little sister type yeah, of thing to I've do. I've got some burger. Um, I will tell you real quick that I shot a bull last year, and I'd love to know more of the science behind this. I shot a bull last year. Uh, it was the first Roosevelt that I've ever shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and this bull was was maybe two but the Roosevelt guys tell me, no way, this is a two-year-old. It's probably a three-year-old. Um, either way, it was not an old bull. That one's even tough to tell with teeth. Yeah. So yeah, there's some heavy yes. In I sent a teeth in, but we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Um, the point being, it was it's certainly not a mature old bull by any means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the toughest elk I've ever eaten. Mm. The first shot that I took um, was slightly quartering two. But close, you know, like 100 yards close. Um, felt good about the shot. Slightly according to uh, shot placement was good. Um, bull ran about 50 yards and stood behind a tree for a little bit, up behind a, like a big bush. Didn't give me a clear second shot. He stood there for a while, stood there for a while. Kept thinking, man, he's going to tip over, he's going to tip over. And finally I thought, well, I'm going to shoot through the bush at his neck just to end this. Um, and so I did and he dropped. So I, what I'm trying to decide is what happened chemically from the time that I shot that bull to the time that I finished him to make those muscle fibers lock up and not let go. Now the butchering process happened really quickly. Uh, the meat cooled really quickly. Then the meat was in a cooler for like an air conditioned meat cooler for five days and then brought home um and processed on again in cooler uh i don't i don't remember specifically day seven day Pl- eight. plenty of days for wild game plenty of days for wild game um so i so i can't decide if after the first shot something was happening chemically to the muscle fibers or if the second shot when it hit central nervous system and dropped him if that triggered some sort of lock in muscle fiber. I think your scope in thinking about this is a, is a bit narrow. What if it had nothing to do with you? Maybe. I, it's just hard for me to fathom 
a bull in perfect condition and perfect health to my eye being that tough yeah. and that I'm, young. I mean, you don't know what his week was like. No, um, no. And like we're talking about, these are individuals. Totally. And I've seen the same thing with with every animal, including beef cows. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're just not all the same. Yeah. And with a wild animal, you definitely don't know what's going on in its life. I put, you know, if, if he'd been gut shot, you found him the next day, that's a different deal. Um, if this is all happening within a couple minutes and meat is handled correctly, mm-hmm. that's probably something that happened earlier in that bull's life. It could be. Yeah. It certainly could be. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I like younger elk. I think they taste better. I think spike bulls taste really good. That's probably my favorite. And and part of that, honestly, that's what I grew up on because those were the tags that you could get every year was a yep. rifle spike bull tag. Yep. And it's not an easy hunt, but that time of year for that season, elk are in big herds. You know, it's going to be usually a minimum of 200 head. And you can find 200 head of elk. You can see the swath in the earth where they came out of the mountains and, you know, started to head for the canyons and their migration. Or you can catch up with them and find them. And yep. there's going to be two or three spikes in there. And they're all going to ball up because they saw you because yep. it's wide open. And then eventually a spike's going to step out and, you know, you shoot the thing. And that's that's the elk that I grew up on. Totally. Totally. Yeah, and my dad. Lots of 243 shot spike elk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, my, you know, we, I, maybe we're just coming out of the tail end in our, in our particular area, but we just lived through the LK day. Yeah. You know, in Willow County. The golden age. The golden age. Um, you know, when, when our dads were hunting elk, like if somebody shot a six point, it made the paper. It, it was, did, it did when we were in high school. It was a you big remember deal. remember that? Yeah. I remember Dustin McElroy shooting <laughs> a bull that would not be notable today. Yeah. And it was on the front page of the paper. Seriously. Yeah, seriously. Just a six-point bull. He's yeah. just a bull. My buddy John Vanderzand and his whole family used to come out, and they would hunt, and it was a big group thing. They had a big tent and a nice, you know, nice camp, and, and they were just shooting bulls. Um, and I think I remember John saying he was a f- freshman in high school, somewhere around there. His dad shot a bull that – it was a six by seven, but you know, it was a younger bull, um, two seventy type of bull. And he was like, dude, I remember that our camp got a little bit wild, like my uncles and everything. Cause they'd never seen a bull so big in their entire life. Like we'd been coming out here for years and years. He goes, they got, they got a little wild. Like that was the biggest bull they'd ever seen. And they killed it. Like they were jacked, you know? And now it's like, well, and given, granted, it was a special situation, but the hunt that you and I were on, yeah, um, Jim O'Leary was determined to count every six-point bull that yeah. we saw. Yeah, and I think he got over eighty in the first two days. Yeah, you know, so you compare that with our dads, who were tougher men than us. That was in the same unit. Yeah, we're talking the same unit. Yeah, yeah, and. You know, a lot has changed. There used to be like 20,000 people that came here to hunt elk. Yeah. And it was an over-the-counter tag. And, you know, there'd be miles and miles of people camped and parking and just chaos. And there are fewer elk, for sure. Totally. More deer. More deer. A lot more deer. But, uh, no, 
we we lived through it, and I, I do think that we're on the downhill slide. Multifactorial. Don't blame any one thing, but climate, predators, agronomy, civilization, it's all having an effect. That's a that's a different podcast. Yeah, because it'll make us start talking about deer, and that's a hard one for yeah, me. Yeah, I know. I I have the hardest time getting people to care about mule deer. Why? I think part of it is that they're called mule deer, and that's not very sexy. Part of it is that they can't tell the difference between a mule deer and a white-tailed deer and a black-tailed yeah. deer. Yeah. Um, so if, for people, every animal is a deer, and their most likely experience with it is that you know they're hoping not to hit one on the road. Or they're hoping it doesn't eat the flowers out of their right. garden. They associate mule deer with the town right. clown. So, yeah, I, I think it's just, it's tough to get people to care. Yeah. No, I have, but, I have, a, hard, I have a hard time when we start talking about mule deer. I, I love elk. There's something pretty special about a mature buck, mule deer buck. Anyway. I've seen very few in Oregon. Yep. Very few. Yep. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that I've never seen a a memorably big deer uh, during a hunting season in Oregon. Yeah. I haven't, um, I don't think that I have with a tag in my pocket. Yeah. Um, you shot a nice deer with your bow. I did shoot a nice deer with my bow. Memorably big. Yeah, it was a nice buck. Um, pretty pretty special opportunity I had. I'd been doing some work for some folks that we know. And, um Gosh, I think it was the fourth year that I worked for him. I finally worked up the courage to ask him if I could hunt deer with my bow. Didn't have to draw a tag. It was general. Um, and, yeah, ended up... What I loved most about that hunt is I could just look at bucks. Like, go out all summer, watch bucks. I, <laughs> When I bought my first pickup, when I was old enough to drive, I wasn't that excited i was i was extremely excited i wasn't that excited about running into town hanging out with my friends going to movies or whatever i was stoked because i could drive out and look at bucks that's that's what i needed to pick up for um so this hunt was like just the ultimate chance to do that and uh yeah ended up sneaking in this buck um game yeah it was just it was just awesome got to watch him all summer Got to watch several other bucks all summer. Uh, snuck in, waited him out. Um, Let me clarify something real quick. I think a lot of people will say and hear, watched him all summer. And what that means is that they saw him three times on a trail camera and once running away in real life. What does it mean to you when you say you watched him all summer? I mean that. I I went out there so many times that I was afraid uh, there would be serious consequences with my wife. <laughs> like every free minute I got, I thought about going out there to look at bucks. She's awesome. I uh, didn't mean that in any bad way. She's the best. So you, you might have logged 20 or 30 hours watching this deer? I don't know. I, I easily logged that watching and or looking at bucks. Yeah. But not this deer in particular. Uh, there was another deer that I was really interested in and this is private ground, but you have to understand it's like, this is the breaks of Hell's Canyon. I mean, this is big Canyon country and these are wild deer. I mean, this is not, you know, um, 
And he can't call a canyon steep that doesn't have a mountain lion. In it. They <laughs> yeah. could eat him at any point. Any point. Yeah. Um, and and this other buck that I was looking for, I would only see him every third or fourth time that I went out. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go watch him, you know, feeding the alfalfa until dark. It just wasn't that, which was what it was so appealing to me about it, uh, having, you know, that that type of experience. And there were two big typicals that were on my list, and, and – the, this morning that I hunted, they were both together, and it's the first time they'd been together all summer. And I had never been close enough to them for fear of bumping them. That uh, they'd never been together, and I'd never been close enough to them to really like, you know, start doing brass tacks uh, inches and whatever. And I wasn't really that worried about it, anyways. But I did want to be close enough to know have a have a good estimate on the age now i'll be the first to admit that when a deer hits like over four and a half he's five six seven there you can't i can't look at them and tell you what they are but i can tell you that this buck in the summer when he walked around his brisket wobbled you know he was I, in fact i sent you we one have video, video and you were <laughs> like that's old wobble brisket. Yeah. <laughs> and this, I mean, this deer was built like a keg. Yeah. And part of the reason that I, I initially misjudged him was his body was giant. Yeah. Um, anyway, so these two bucks were together that morning and I snuck in thinking that I wanted to shoot the other buck. Uh, and, and I had wanted to shoot a velvet buck with my bow for years and years. And then I've had so many heartbreaking encounters that I can't even tell you how many, <laughs> uh, on velvet bucks and and that morning the other when i got there the buck that i was hoping to shoot was hardhorn and the buck that i did shoot was still in velvet mm. and when i crept down there they were both bedded together and uh the velvet buck stood up first and i thought okay get ready the the hardhorn buck is going to stand because um, i was going to shoot the hardhorn buck i thought he was the better deer and he didn't stand so this deer, the velvet buck stood up, kind of walked around this tree he was under and was walking towards the hardhorn buck. And I thought, oh, he's going to kick him out of his bed. He's going to get up. He didn't stand. And uh, so the velvet buck came around the tree again like he was going to bed. And I thought, <laughs> I had this moment of clarity. And I was like, dude, you have only known heartbreak on velvet deer. Here's a tremendous velvet deer standing in front of you. Like, shoot that deer so i did and uh ended up that he 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 probably would have stripped out of his velvet in the next day or two it was all greasy and nasty and and uh ended up having to peel it um he scored 183 is a typical and hard horn so with a velvet on you know usually they say you can add four or five inches to that um he was six and a half years old the other buck ended up getting shot in rifle season, scored 174, and was five and a half years old. Hmm. So I accidentally shot the right buck. Good job. And it was one of the coolest things ever. Like yeah. Big mule deer special. Last question. Yeah. What's something people can do before these hunting seasons kick off this fall that uh, no matter – what critter they're going after or what continent they're doing it on will improve their success in the field? Uh, it's a great question. Um, 
there are a lot of how-to articles out there you can read. There are a lot of how-to podcasts you can listen to. I'm not a how-to guy because um, I'm still learning every day. So what I would say, and, and guiding taught me this, guiding on a special place taught me this. Um, think about what it is that you're hoping to get out of your hunt. What is important to you in your hunt? Is it harvesting an animal at all costs? Is it harvesting a big animal at all costs? Are you going to be able, if you're trying to hunt that, you know, 340 bull, but you shoot a 300 bull, like, is that going to make you happy? Um, I, after I got done, I'm still guiding a little bit, still have my guides license. But when I stopped guiding out on that piece of property, uh, I went on a couple hunts that were just new, um, have some good buddies in Kansas who were kind enough to invite me out and, and you know, they're hunting world-class box in Kansas. And, uh, I saw a couple tremendous deer ended up hunting for nine days. And on the eighth day I shot like whatever He's my best deer with my bow, but to their standards, this is not a nice deer. Like there's, you know, they're not ever going to think about shooting this buck. I was so stinking happy and fulfilled by that hunt. Like it, it was new. It was fun. There was no pressure to perform. There was no expectation of what I'd hoped to kill. I held out for good bucks. Um, but it wasn't a hunt where I needed to kill a buck. I wouldn't have needed to kill a buck at all. Uh, but man, I look at that deer and I'm like, that hunt and that experience was a game changer for me. The Roosevelt hunt last year, I was having a hard time. I almost didn't go on it. And I thought, man, go do something new. Go do something where, again, you're not going to have expectation. You're going to be happy to be there. You're going to be happy to spend time with the people that you're going with. And if you get an elk, it's a bonus. Uh, Another super fulfilling hunt. I did get an elk. But, it, you know, it's like that's not what I talk about, really, when I talk about that hunt. Um, So... I, I just ask most guys, especially when I'm guiding, like you can shoot whatever you want, whatever animal you want, but you better be happy and respectful to the animal that you do shoot. Otherwise don't shoot one, you know, don't shoot one. Um, but yeah, think, think about what is going to fulfill your experience and like fill your adventure cup and will that cup be full if you don't harvest an animal? That's great. It's not an easy task. No. Learn how to develop realistic and healthy expectations. That's it's a difficult task. But, boy, if you can master that within hunting, you're going to have a greater fulfillment in every aspect of your life. I think. I mean, that's what I'm – I think that perspective from hunting a lot, you know – like spending a lot of time on it has brought me to that perspective. Yeah. Uh, I would add to that. And I kind of talked about it earlier. I know I've talked about it before and I'm going to talk about it again. Don't let a number dictate your experience. No, no, not the number of times, not the number of yards, not the number of inches. Don't let a number dictate your experience because as soon as you apply a number, then that number 
you know, becomes the flag. Like it, it quantifies your experience and the experience of hunting a bull elk or a mature mule deer buck or a kudu or a warthog should not be quantifiable. And the score does not tell any no. part of the story. No. It has nothing to do with the story. Uh, nothing to do with you. It has really. nothing to do with you. Yeah. 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 Um, so, no, I think that's tremendous advice, especially especially in today's social media world. Like, I, that's it's ultra important to keep that perspective. Yeah. For sure. Appreciate your time. Man, this was actually really fun. This is a... Uh, <laughs> This is the first time, uh, you know, long time listener, first time caller here, <laughs> first first podcast, and I, it's good conversation. I knew it'd be good conversation. Hopefully, it's enjoyable to listen to you and and uh, yeah, just telling hunting stories is important. Yeah, it's important for us. That's another good one. Yeah, yeah. Work on your hunting stories and don't be afraid to tell them. Remember what you had for dinner and write it down. Mm-hmm. What it smell like. That's right. All right. All right, man. Thank you. Cheers. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing, and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal, and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.